Hi, this is Samir Kaji, your host of the Venture Unlocked podcast. In this episode, I have the great joy of speaking with John Sakota, founding partner of Decibel Ventures. John started Decibel in 2018 with a very unique relationship with Cisco and previously spent over 10 years at NEA. Before starting in venture, John served as CTO and co-founder of venture-backed IAM Logic, which was acquired by Symantec in 2006, bringing a wealth of knowledge about startups and venture. I'm so excited to bring you this show where John speaks about his views on venture today and where he sees the industry going, what it truly means to add value to companies, and how GPs should think about corporate LPs. Now let's get into this episode to hear all of this and more. John, it's so good to have you on the show. No, thank you for having me. By the way, I should say, I am so excited that you decided to do this podcast, and I'm really grateful to be a guest. I appreciate it. We're going to dig into some really interesting stuff about how you think about venture and how you run Decibel. Before we get into that, let's go through your background. You're a technical operator turned VC at NEA for over a decade and launched Decibel in 2018. Walk us through the story. Yeah, so I always like to remind people that I'm still a recovering entrepreneur. I started my first company when I was 24. If you remember before, there was Facebook and friends. There was instant messaging, AIM, MSN, Yahoo, ICQ. You must have had an AIM account. That's right, I do. (laughs) So uh, we actually built instant messaging security software. So when people went to work every day, they used instant messaging, but they were creating a lot of security vulnerabilities. And so we created an instant messaging firewall. We stopped bad things from coming into companies when people used I am at work. We stopped good things from going out. And we were eventually acquired by Symantec in 2006. I would say looking back that like many entrepreneurs who build a company for the first time, we made all of the obvious mistakes that everybody makes. I've come to learn that I I think every founder ultimately makes similar types of mistakes. And certainly, I think we had to do all the really, really challenging things that everyone has to go through. We pivoted before pivoting was cool. We got sued and had a cease and desist letter. Uh, We always felt like we were six months from death. And I I never really forget that journey. And my wife certainly never has forgotten that journey. And I, I think in 2006, I didn't really know what I wanted to do next. Maybe like many founders had mild PTSD and didn't know that I wanted to start another company. And I was recruited to join NEA. Peter Barris and Harry Weller, they actually had gotten to know me. They were looking at investing in my prior company. My prior company was called I Am Logic. And I had actually moved to the DC area and Peter and Harry had, had become good friends with me. And we started to talk about different things that I could do as a venture capitalist. And they invited me to join NEA back in 2006. And it was really an amazing time to join NEA. You may recall back in 2006, Samir, uh, NEA raised a $2.5 billion venture fund. And this was 10 times larger than the average venture capital fund back in 2006. It was really the first of what I think of now as the institutional diversified, multi-stage, multi-sector, multi-geography funds. But Though that is fairly common today amongst many firms, it was actually quite new back in 2006. Back in 2006, actually, it was quite controversial to raise a multi-stage fund. And we were one of the few funds to do that in 2006 and 2009. I think we really had a really unique purview into the market. We certainly had a very differentiated product, not just for LPs, but also for entrepreneurs. It was one of the first times that entrepreneurs could really work with a fund through multiple stages. 
We also had the breadth of geographic diversity and sector diversity during that time. So it was really a spectacular time to be at NEA. I, I spent 12 years there and in many ways grew up there and had a chance to work with the best of the best and, and learn from the best of the best. I actually think that there really isn't a better place to learn the venture capital business than, than in a place like NEA where you can work with lots of different types of people, you can work across stages, you can work across sectors and um, and even geographies. And, and I, I, I feel like I got to see and do a little bit of everything while I was there. So after 12 years there, and you're absolutely correct. I mean, I think NEA was one of the first few, especially of that size and scale, to be able to invest cross-sector and certainly cross-stage. What catalyzed the move of leaving NEA and starting Decibel? What opportunity did you see? And how did you chart the course of what type of firm you wanted to build? Well, I think after 12 years in a firm like NEA, um, you, you certainly have every opportunity to see all the changes in an industry. If you remember that this, this industry was very small when I raised money from venture capitalists back in 2001. If you go back in time, there was really only about 100 active venture firms. They were all incredibly small. You know, the average fund just had maybe 100 or $200 million. And it was a, a much more focused industry. You know, there, there wasn't the same uh, um, capacity to incorporate technology into every type of business that you're seeing today. So in short, the industry went from being very small to being very large in the 15 to 20 years or so that I had been either a customer of the venture product as an entrepreneur or a vendor of the venture product at NEA. And I, I, I think in every industry, you, uh, I, I think Jim Barksdale famously has said, there's really only two major ways to make money or create differentiation, either through bundling or unbundling. And I think the venture capital industry is very similar. I think um, one of the more successful playbooks in venture over the last decade or two has been bundling. And I think NEA and many other firms have successfully built multi-stage, multi-sector, uh, highly diversified venture capital platforms that try to serve entrepreneurs at every stage across the many different types of businesses that one might create. Um, Similarly, I think the unbundling strategy here in 2020 is one of the most successful and innovative approaches. You've seen the rise of um, specialist funds. You've seen the rise of super angels. You've seen the rise of sole GPs. You've seen the rise of corporate investors. Uh, so our, our industry went from being very small to being very large. I think we have 10,000 venture-backed companies today. We have you know, probably close to 1,000 active institutional investors. So it's, you know, it's no longer the small industry that it once was. And I think in 2020, it's not getting any smaller. I think innovation and technology is the future, not just of the tech industry, but also of every industry. I think every company is becoming a software and tech company or is going to be competing against a software and tech company soon. And maybe there were some debate as to whether that was true in all industries prior to 2020. But I think in 2020, it's certainly become more true, not less true. I think mo most people now realize that technology will be a part of every major business and every major industry. And it will not just be a, uh, an enabler, but it will be a strategic competency that everybody has to, has to invest in and own. And there, I think, is, is, is really the the sort of setting for what I call the industrial era of venture. I really think now um, 
we 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 see uh, just a very very large industry with a very complex value chain. And as I said, this industry is not getting any smaller. So either I think you need to figure out how you're going to bundle and be um, a successful competitive player across all stages, or you have to find the unique segment of your value chain where you can be a true specialist and offer a highly differentiated service and really try to scale up your differentiation around the specialization and the sector that you're in. So not, not surprisingly, I think in today's world, a lot of the innovation is focused on early stage investing. Uh, I think new entrants and smaller funds, first time funds, uh, in some ways they have no choice but to but to play at earlier stages because the capital bases tend to be smaller. But I also think that is where almost all of the opportunity is for innovation. I think there's a lot less innovation in financing companies and how the money flows to companies as they scale and grow. I think it's just a lot more innovation in how to help founders. And arguably, I'd say at the at the earliest stage, uh, people need a lot of help. And, and maybe there hasn't been as much innovation in how we've chosen to help companies. So Decibel to me is really um, one of many funds that is trying to embark on building out differentiation through specialization and services. When a founder comes and works with Decibel, they are getting hopefully the best of what independent venture firms that are specialists can do for founders. So we, we try to do everything that we can to make sure that uh, they're making a great choice in picking us to get capital and advice and mentorship and other things that everyone expects out of their venture capitalists. But we also really want them to believe that we're going to bring a new weapon to the game and an unfair advantage in helping them find product market fit, which again is usually left to chance and is something that people don't tend to focus on in terms of scale and specialization. Well, let me double click on one thing that you just mentioned around product that you offer entrepreneurs. And we often hear about value add. And I think every venture investor says they add value in some fundamental way. Oftentimes, it's very hard to execute on consistently, or at least I don't see it. What is your formula for helping portfolio companies? Is there some kind of system that you use at Decibel that ensures that portfolio companies, once they walk into the door and become a portfolio company, they know exactly what they're going to get? I'm so glad you asked this question. In some ways, it is really sad that in today's world, a lot of founders don't believe that venture capitalists can be helpful and add a lot of value. I think there's probably some good reason for that. But, you know, when I go back to my founding experience, I had a tremendous amount of help and a tremendous amount of value that was added by my venture capitalists. And I, I truly believe that this is what we get paid to do. And if we, if we can't build repeatability and if we can't get our customers to believe that we are actually adding value, then I do think we leave ourselves vulnerable to be disintermediated by something else. So I, I care deeply about this and I'm really glad that you asked this question. The first is I, I think you have to decide where you're gonna add value. I, I think one of the great challenges in adding value is it's very hard to add value to everybody. Um, if you think about it, the venture industry is just a lot bigger now than it was before. So in the past, it, the types of companies that were being founded were, were narrower in scope, but now almost every segment of the economy is being disrupted. And so 
it's very challenging to say that you're going to be able to add value to every single type of company that is being formed today. So a health tech company is very different than even a biopharma company. Even though they're in the same field, they're incredibly different at the earliest stage. And certainly those companies are very different than consumer internet companies, which are very different than fintech companies, which are very different than B2B software companies. And then even within areas like B2B software, you have applications, you have infrastructure, and you have open source, you have SaaS, you have try before you buy models, you have all sorts of different uh, variations in what people are trying to do. I think it's that variety and the volume that just makes it so challenging for any one person or any small group of people to add a lot of value. So I think the first step is, is really truly deciding what is it that that you're going to do and what are the things that you're not going to do. Uh, so specialization and deciding where you're going to choose to add value is number one. We focus on B2B software. And as I said, we, we, we truly try to focus on helping people to find and connect with great early adopters and to do so at some size and scale that maybe people previously hadn't imagined. Part of how we do that is not wholly by just relying on the small group of people that work at Decibel, as much as I think it is important to harness our own personal energy and our own personal networks to do so, I also think you need strength in numbers or you need, you need, you need something other than just yourself in order to compete in 2020. We decided to work with, with a very unique partner in Cisco uh, to help unbundle some of their capabilities to help our founders, our portfolio companies, meet early adopters in a more systematic and scalable way than perhaps what many people had previously tried. So corporate investing is not new. Early stage venture capital is not new. Um, but certainly there is a lot of uniqueness and innovation in how we're all trying to help founders. And I, I think what uh, big companies like Cisco are starting to do is they're starting to really think about how they can play in the innovation ecosystem. I don't think anybody thinks that they can own or capture all the innovation going on in the world today. I, I think anyone that thinks that they can um, tackle all the possible sources of innovation through all of their possible business units inside their four walls um, is likely going to be left behind. I think somebody that recognizes the, the, their internal capabilities plus their external capabilities is really the only way to, to capture the innovation that's going on in this world. So um, our partnership with them is really unique and that it allows us to work with them and, and in a sense unbundle some of what they do so that our founders can leverage the hundreds, if not thousands, if not tens of thousands of customer relationships that Cisco has. And that allows our founders to get access to people that maybe conventionally would be a lot harder if they were doing it on their own or if they were doing it on their own and we were doing it on our own. I think we, we, we can bring more capabilities and more numbers uh, and add a little bit more magic and, and also just a lot more math uh, to this equation of helping small companies meet great early adopters. Well, we'll get into the Cisco relationship in a minute. Before we do that, I wanted to bring up the notion about operator turned VCs. We're certainly seeing more of that. One of the things that I often hear from founders is that some of these VCs struggled between lending the appropriate amount of help, drawing from their backgrounds as operators versus trying to help too much, and in some cases, trying to run the company. How do you strike that balance personally? 
The first thing is, again, just to focus on where you're choosing to help companies and, and how you're choosing to help companies. So I, I, I think many founders today, uh, it, it's a little different than maybe where we were 15 or 20 years ago. 15 or 20 years ago, there wasn't as much knowledge about how to build successful companies. If you think about it, the internet was still in its infancy. We didn't have the same widespread content creation, content development, content syndication. There weren't there, there just weren't as many sources of wisdom as there were in the past. And because of that, I think venture capitalists had a very important role in telling people, if not showing them directly how to do things and bringing in the right types of people to do things, because it was still a lot harder for founders to learn it on their own. Uh, there, there, there weren't startup schools. There weren't as many successful examples of companies that had been founded. There weren't as many people to turn to if you had a question. And so I, I think that that created some of the maybe conventional thinking that venture capitalists have to be incredibly hands-on with their companies. And, and in that vein, I think there's sometimes a, a negative bias where people think that the venture capitalists will come in and tell you and show you how to build your company. There are many examples of people who, who have done that and have done so successfully. And so to the extent all you're really doing is measuring the, the output or the outcome, uh, I, I think sometimes you, you can't really argue with the success. But at the same time, I think in today's world, in 2020, founders have a lot of choices. And I think increasingly people want to find a way to do it their way, as opposed to wanting to find a, a you know, to follow somebody else's path or to be told exactly have to do something. So I, I, I think if you want to be a, a successful venture capitalist in 2020, you, you need to rely a lot more on influence as opposed to um, outright advice. And, and probably more importantly, I, I tell people that, that you know, advice is great, but there's lots of places to get advice from. And what, what people really need now is action. They, you know, there's so much to do and our world is so competitive uh, that when people talk about operators coming in and helping people uh, by adding value, they're, they're really talking more about action than they're talking about advice. Advice uh, is, is sort of the precursor to helping somebody to get where they need to go, but ultimately they, they just need to get there. And action is, is a lot more tangible. It's, you know, these are the things I'm going to do to move your needle. And, you know, action puts you on the same side of the table as a founding team and, and helps them go from point A to point B to point C, because in some ways you're all trying to get to the same place. And it, it may seem like a, like a small shift, but, but I, I, think, I think in the eyes of the founder, it's, it's a huge change as to whether or not they view you as judging them and telling them what to do versus you helping them and rolling up your sleeves and, and picking up the ball and helping them get from point A to point B. I think it's a good segue when you talk about action and the delivery of actual value to these founders. And you touched on the whole Cisco partnership, which, you know, you're right. We've seen corporate VC significantly increase over the last decade and a half, both creating within in-house corporate VC arms, as well as corporates acting as LPs and other funds. Yours is a unique partnership in that Cisco is a massive anchor did not decide to do this within their own walls. How did this partnership come about? And as you evaluated it, how did you view the potential pros and cons? I give uh, the new CEO of Cisco, Chuck Robbins, a lot of credit for um, coming into Cisco 
five years ago and deciding that he needed to change everything. So many people have followed how Satya Nadella uh, took over Microsoft from Bill Gates and Steve Ballmer. And Microsoft famously, as we all know, was all but left for dead. They had, they had missed almost every major technology trend since the internet. But Satya came in and said, look, we've got to change everything. We've got to rethink everything. And, you know, they bought LinkedIn, they bought GitHub. They, you know, they went from being um, a company that rejected iOS and Android to being a company that is now, you know, wholly, on, wholly running in cloud and, 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 and ultimately is becoming one of the biggest contributors to open source and community-led software. So that, that transformation is well chronicled. And, and at Cisco, I think, um, Chuck Robbins was was well on his way. He's a quieter version of Satya Nadella and, and was somebody who was well on his way to um, trying to follow in his footsteps and in effect change everything. Uh, one of the most important things to Cisco has always been its capacity to acquire great companies. It's, it's, um, it's celebrated history largely is on the back of many, many, many successful acquisitions. Actually, many people forget its core business is actually a highly successful acquisition made back in 1996. So it's a company culturally that always has had the customer as the North Star, has always viewed founders and entrepreneurs as its future. And I think because of that, they had a very unique culture and a very unique leader who came in and said that he wanted to find a way to bring the best of Cisco to founders and I, I think whether, you know, whether he was wise or courageous or a little bit of both, I think he realized that um, solely trying to do this internally would not necessarily get him where he needed to be. It, cer it certainly wouldn't have been as innovative an approach. And I think he really wanted to try to do something to unbundle and bring the best of Cisco to founders and to do so in a way that maybe hadn't been tried before. And that's what led us ultimately to create Decibel. And you were very clear in terms of what companies can expect once they come in, and certainly the Cisco channel. The one thing I occasionally get when people are considering LPs that are corporates, and even founders who have thought about corporates and thought not everything's positive, there might be some strings attached with the funding. This is very different in that you are an independent entity but how did you think about partnering with a corporate in general? Forgetting about Cisco for a second, were there things that you needed to make sure were in place to take that type of partnership and capital? Well, first, I, I, I think it's critically important to always be able to put founders' interests first. No, no matter what, what you're doing in our business to invest in companies or support founders or help them grow, I think ultimately... Uh, we need to put founders first, and and to do that, very frequently venture capitalists need to make tough, independent decisions. We need to make that when we're investing. We need to make that when we're supporting companies through follow-ons. We need to do that when we think through exits and acquisitions. And um, so, in, independence was a very important principle for us. And from the very beginning, uh, I really admired that Cisco wanted the partners of Decibel to be able to put founders first, and and that that wholly meant that we would act as if we were a wholly independent general partner group. And, and in many ways that did break conventional wisdom. I, I, think, I think the conventional wisdom is that corporate investing is wholly designed to serve the business units of a company. And, and perhaps, perhaps there have been a handful of, of investing platforms inside of corporate 
that have spun out or that have been created recently that are much more independent and are there to serve the companies. And, you know, I, I, I look at some of the biggest and most innovative companies in technology, whether it be uh, Google or Microsoft or even more recently companies like Facebook and Amazon. Yeah, I, I think the, the biggest companies in the world are all figuring out ways to do this. And in some ways, I think Cisco has just taken a very independent and very provocative way of doing this by partnering with people who have come from the independent venture industry. Um, I, I similarly think that for others who are thinking through, you know, is this a an asset? Is it a liability? I, I think it really depends on what you're trying to do. And, and I always tell people that this is not going to work for everybody. Um, it, it, it happens to work in our case because of the founders that we're trying to serve. The founders that, that we invest in are, you know, are B2B software companies. They, they care a lot about customer access. And because they care a lot about customer access and funding early adopters, partnering with a company like Cisco, who's known for having great customer access and longstanding relationships with very large buyers of software, uh, that's a tremendous asset to unbundle. And, and again, if you're starting a company in a different sector, that, that, that appeal may not be as strong as it is for our founders. So again, I think, I think the independence is the first and most important point that everyone should consider. But I think the second one is how big of an asset are you, are you going to get when you choose to partner with a corporate investor? And if it's a really, really big asset, then unquestionably, I think we all need to find ways to build unfair advantages for our companies. And so um, I think it is absolutely worth innovating and trying to create something new because, you know, in a world where capital creates less and less and less differentiation, I think we all need to find more differentiated sources of capital in order to create even more competitive differentiation and unfair advantages for our companies. So I. You know, I, I have a very strong opinion that that you know this is this is where the world is heading, in particular early stage, because again, there's only so much money that you can throw at at early stage companies to solve their problems. I have a two part question, and the first part of the question is centered around the presence of a corporate LP in a fund, particular one that's a large anchor investor, and whether that in any way impedes or creates friction of bringing in traditional financial investors. I'd be curious from your experience, were there any areas of reticence, questions that came up, concerns, and how did you manage through that? Absolutely. First, I should say that in general, most LPs don't like to do things that are terribly innovative. And I think you have written about this in the past. I think it's great advice. The people want unique and differentiated strategies, but they also want to invest in relatively conventional products. So it was important for us to strike that balance where people felt like they were getting an independent venture capital fund, even though we were creating something that was unique and differentiated and, and had in many ways had not been done before. We, we were, this is the first time a, a major tech company was, was partnering with proven venture capital investors from Silicon Valley to create a new firm uh, in this way. And that, that, in and of itself allows us to create these unique competitive advantages. But at the same time, I do think, um, you know, it, it, it has to also look like it's a conventional product. So very importantly to us, things like governance are incredibly important. We had to create an independent LP advisory board. Um, that was an incredibly important point to every institutional investor. They wanted to make sure that 
there was independent fiduciaries who were looking out and looking over the fund so that um, solely institutional interests would be protected and that we wouldn't somehow only be serving the interests of our anchor limited partner. I think also similarly, what, what was surprising uh, is that even Cisco thought that this was uh, a important and unique thing for our fund to have. Many of our companies are not competing with Cisco, but maybe down the road, some of them are. And traditionally, I think LPs would have access to information about companies um, because there wouldn't be any perceived conflict of interest. But I think in this particular case, we had to contemplate that there might be conflict of interest between our companies and, and a company like Cisco. And so, as you might imagine, though this would be a positive case for everybody, there might be material economic positions that, that Cisco has no information on because we've invoked information rights and confidentiality rights and, and, and there's you know, conflict of interest which would preclude them from important economic decisions that we're making in the funds. And in, and in that case, you might imagine they want somebody else um, governing and looking over the GPs, much like institutional LP advisory boards would do, because even though they know they can't monitor exactly what we are doing with their money, there are other people who are monitoring the investments on their behalf. So I, I, I think even though initially it didn't necessarily seem like both sides were going to win, uh, as we eventually put together the fund, the, the conventional structure of having independence in your advisory board actually became a major feature to Cisco. The second part of my question is around this unique partnership between yourself and Cisco. Do you see this as being something that represents Cisco being a pioneer where other legacy tech companies and maybe even legacy non-tech companies do and partner with the funds where they're there, the anchor investor, there is a partnership that is meant to be highly synergistic and long-term, or is this just unique and something very, very different that we may not see more as a ubiquitous play? Every trend has you know, people that came before and people that are here now and people that will come after. So very humbly, I would say that we're following in the footsteps of probably two decades of large corporate investors who have been moving their investing platforms into more independent entities. Um, I look back at Intel Capital 20 years ago, I give them ton, a ton of credit. I look at Sapphire, which was founded of SAP. I look at uh, Google Ventures, which was founded in 2009. I look at M12 that it was created just recently at Microsoft. So I, I think it's, it's unfair to say that we're really the only ones doing this. I, I think everybody is doing this in some way. I, I think what everybody has to decide is what are the trade-offs that they're going to make and what are the advantages of these of these moves? Because I, I, I think there's um, wholly deciding to, to make your investing practice more independent is just the first step. There are many, many questions about how you choose to recruit people into that entity, how you choose to compensate them. I think there's a, there's a ton of questions just on the, the more generic side of setting up a fund and uh, there, there are many, many people I think who are now under, are, are now becoming more familiar with this model and are considering pursuing it. But I, I think equally importantly, Samir is is ultimately just capitalizing the fund is 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 the beginning to trying to define what the unfair advantages or what the competitive advantages are. So I, I think the if we if we end up having this podcast ten years from now and we look back. 
I think we'll ask, we'll ultimately be asking, where did the unfair advantages come from by choosing to unbundle parts of what corporate investors can do and partnering them with more independent investing platforms? Because I think solely capitalizing an independent investing platform is not enough. I think ultimately, you know, specialization in services means delivering unique capabilities that help companies get up the mountain. And I think if you can build those capabilities in partnership with a big corporate, then, um, then I think you have really something to offer that's unique and sustainable. And I think if you're only just trying to capitalize the entity because you just want to invest, uh, then I think you are maybe missing out on one of the great opportunities that I think exist to innovate in the venture model and in the corporate investing model. John, one last question. I ask this to everyone on the show, and it's really around advice you'd give to somebody that's aspiring to be a VC, young in their careers. And I want to modify this question slightly. You spent a long time at a very established firm, now two years running your own firm. Part of the unbundling, we do see a lot of spin-ups, right? So people leaving established shops to now running an entire firm and being a chief cook and bottle washer. What advice would you give to people that are leaving established shops to starting their own? What have you learned? What's been more difficult, easier? How should they think about it? The first thing I would say is starting anything is incredibly difficult. So I, I, I still remember that having started my own company and even looking back on you know, late 2018, early 2019, I would say that if I'm, if I'm being honest, starting anything from scratch is really, really hard. And, uh, and, and I, don't, I don't think anybody um, should take that for granted. I, I, I think it, it humbles all of us. And I think we should all remember that when we start something, we all start with nothing. So it doesn't really matter where you came from. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter um, what you've done in the past. Uh, you, it, it's always day one. And, uh, and we all have to build something out of nothing. That, that, that experience was um, maybe even more empathetic, I think, to founders and made me even more emboldened to try to make sure that what we're doing serves founders and that when people do show up and say, how are you different and what is it that you're going to do to help that not only that you have a clear and distinct answer to that, but also that you follow up on it. So I think that this business sometimes is quite complicated, but sometimes it's quite simple. I, I think ultimately to be successful in this business, you have to put your founders first. I, I think without great referencing and credibility, uh, you know, you you just you just can't build a sustainable venture practice. I think in software and in consumer businesses, we all talk about you know net promoter scores and net retention rates, and you know th th this business is 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 exactly the same. I think if your early adopters and your early founders don't love your product, then it is hard to really grow and scale a venture franchise. And, you know, that comes from doing what you say you will do. You know, it's easy to say that you want to be helpful, but it's quite hard to actually be helpful. So I think focusing on, um, you know, standing out from the crowd by doing what you say and delivering on it. And, you know, I always I always say this to everybody in our business, but the, the, it, the, the most important thing when you're working with founders is to show up when it's hard. You know, I, I always say, like, you have to run towards the fire. You don't want to be known as somebody that runs away from the fire. And there are there are a ton of fires in startups, and we all have to figure out how to put them out and how to help people rebuild and how to help people move on. And, 
uh, and get back on track because it's really the companies that learn how to survive the moments of crisis that kill others that ultimately find the resiliency to grow and sustain themselves through what can be a really turbulent ride. So I, I, I always just like to remind people that we just need to respect the work of the founder. And if we do that, then we'll end up being successful. And there's there's been nothing that has reminded me more of that than starting my own venture capital fund. I have an additive uh, question to the final question, and that's coming from NEA, where you were a partner and your focus was investing in companies, sourcing them, and helping the, the portfolio companies to really running an entire shop. Is there one thing that now that you look back strikes you as, wow, that was much, much harder than I thought? And if so, what is that? There's no day off. I guess it's as simple as that, Samir. Maybe you can appreciate that if you remember what it was like to build your franchise. There's no day off. There, there. I, I, and I, I deeply respect how founders feel. Founders also don't really get a day off, and you know, there's no such thing as I can have a bad meeting because every meeting that you have is your opportunity to, um, you know, capture and capitalize on the moment and. And you know, you we we are the product. So when when partners of Decibel show up every day and meet with founders, when we meet with customers, when we meet with everybody in our ecosystem, uh, you know, we are the product. And there's no opportunity to have a bad day or an off day. And you know, I think that that psychology definitely pervades everything that you do when you start something new. And that 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 does stand out in contrast, maybe to other other places where you feel like. The system is already working and you can rely on others or rely on something else uh, to carry a firm or a business forward. I think when you're starting from scratch, uh, you should always remind yourself that there's no day off. There's no opportunity for there's no offer opportunity for you to have a bad day. So you have to come up with a to come up with a way to show up every day and have your best day. Well, this has been great, John. Again, I appreciate you coming on and you know, look forward to releasing this. No, thank you again. I'm so excited that you're doing this. And again, it's just a privilege to be invited on. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to our episode with John Sakota. To learn more about John and Decibel and his experiences and insights in venture, and in particular, building a great venture firm, be sure to go to Apple Podcasts, where you'll find detailed notes on the show. While you're there, hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every Venture Unlocked episode as soon as it's released. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and review. It really, really helps us. Thanks so much.